Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 7th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, rather than present my commentary on the balance of John chapter 3, something which I am not quite yet prepared to do, I decided to present a related paper by Clifton Emmerheiser and offer an expanded commentary on that. The paper is titled, John 3.16, What It Says and What It Doesn't, and was finalized by Clifton on March 8th of 2004. Doing this, I will necessarily repeat several things which I said in Part 9 of my commentary on the Gospel of John, and also some things which I hope to state in Part 10, which is soon forthcoming, I pray. Doing this, the evolution of our opinions on John 3.16 may also be better understood, although I wish that Clifton were here to share that. In this paper, Clifton employed several of my own notes, which I had sent to him on the subject, but also because he was copying something I wrote to him in a letter, he referred to several of my other writings, which I shall endeavor to include, or at least to elaborate upon here. John 3.16, what it says and what it doesn't. Most of Clifton's pamphlet-sized essays were written in response to someone that he had questions from, or someone whom he questioned. Or sometimes something he saw in the media. I do not remember the specific reason why Clifton had written this essay 14 years ago, but because he did include a couple of paragraphs from a letter I wrote to him on his subject, and because they discuss the errors of a certain individual whom Clifton addresses here, we must have had an ongoing dialogue leading up to this publication. As the impetus for this essay, Clifton recalls a trip he made to Luton, Tennessee for a Christian identity Feast of Tabernacles gathering in 1996. During the course of his nearly 20-year ministry, Clifton had made quite a few responses to what he had seen and heard at that particular gathering, and this was perhaps among the last of them. Among those responses, he was compelled to write his papers on the Ephraim Scepter heresy, a defense of Matthew and Luke, and more significantly, the first 21 of his watchman's teaching letters, which were all subtitled with the question, just who is this patriarch, Judah? So it might even be safe to say that the single gathering in Luden, Tennessee, 
1996 was also the real impetus for Clifton starting his ministry. Clifton had explained in his second Watchman's teaching letter for June of 2008 that on October, I'm sorry, I got that off by 10 years, for June of 1998, that on October 4th, 1996, I went to Luden, Tennessee at the Piney Ruritan Community Center for the Feast of Tabernacles. There were four speakers scheduled to speak. <clears throat> James P. Wickstrom. I'm sorry. James P. Wickstrom. Richard Hoskins. Paul Burnham and a fellow by the name of Scott Vaught. All the speakers did quite well except this Scott Vaught, who was supposed to be an expert in Paleo-Hebrew. Really, he just makes things up. Listed third on the billing was this person by the name of Scott Vaught, and this was his credentials. Constitutional Delegate of Arkansas student, teacher, and researcher of Paleo-Hebrew, our ancestral native tongue, for over 15 years. Clifton says, as I was to learn later, Scott Vaught was a fountain of misinformation of a monumental degree. As I listened in amazement, he spewed out one vial of poison after another. The very first paper Clifton wrote in response to what he had heard at that gathering is a 13,000-word diatribe titled The Lies of Scott Vaught. I have two electronic copies of it in our files, one which was completed in October of 1996 which could not have been long after Clifton returned home from Luton, and a second slightly edited copy from May of 1998, just before he began his ministry. Much of the content of that paper was later used by Clifton in his first few dozen Watchman's teaching letters. But Clifton only distributed the original paper amongst a small circle of acquaintances and it was never completely published on the internet. One day I may publish it, but I would probably want to edit and annotate it first. Later on from prison, as I became more involved in Clifton's ministry, I also corresponded with Scott Vaught and a companion of his named Russell Walker. I can only say that I have never in my life met a more wayward and obstinate pair of men who fabricate their opinions based on particular agendas, who will uphold any lie so long as they imagine that it supports their agenda who support one another's lies, even though they contradict their own, and who accept not an ounce of correction, regardless of the authority from whence it comes. Several years after I got home from prison, 
Russell Walker even denied corresponding with me, perhaps sometime around 2005, and I embarrassed him by producing the letters that I had saved. On the one hand, it is a blessing that Christian identity does not have a catechism, because the discovery of truth is an ongoing phenomenon, and we constantly need to adjust ourselves to any new facts which can be soundly established. But on the other hand, because it does not have a catechism, it invites every heresy that the many charlatans which it attracts can contrive and spread with deceit. That was the basis for Clifton's entire ministry, was to answer much of that deceit. Now with this background, we shall present John 3.16, what it says and what it doesn't, by Clifton Amaheiser. We have been told by many throughout the years that John 3.16 is the golden text of the Bible, but labeling it as such seems to imply that it holds priority over all the other verses found in Scripture. Therefore, we must ask, why is this passage elevated above all others, and what is the motivation in support of such a position? In considering such a claim, one must admit that all that such a stance places all other biblical passages in a subordinate role. This paper is not an argument that there are not cardinal biblical passages that stand above others, but do all biblical passages stand or fall on John 3.16? Or is it possible that John 3.16 supports a cardinal passage of greater importance than itself? We must further question whether or not we even understand John 3.16 as it was originally written in the Greek. Did the translators do the Greek justice? There are some that go so far as to make the claim that John 3.16 was never in the original manuscripts. This claim is made by some identity Christians of several passages in John, without any substantiation, of course. On October 4, 1996, I went to Luden, Tennessee, at the Piney Ruritan Community Center for the Feast of Tabernacles. There were four speakers scheduled to speak. James P. Wickstrom, Richard Hoskins, Paul Burnham, and a fellow by the name of Scott Vaught. Wickstrom got so upset with Scott Vaught that he packed his things and left, whereupon another speaker was invited to take the pulpit in Jim's place. Clifton, many years before I ever met him, Clifton first learned of Two Seed Line from James Wickstrom. And he and Wickstrom got along quite well for a long time. 
Then, from what I understand, Clifton became discouraged when Wickstrom started promoting the Y2K hysteria and hardly spoke of him and not at all to him after that nonsense had made a lot of identity Christians of the time look quite foolish. But Clifton had told me much later that Wickstrom was upset foremost with Scott Vaught's Paul bashing. To his credit, even with all of his other faults, Wickstrom never accepted the lies of the Paul bashers. Later, two men much closer to Wickstrom would also become Paul bashers, which are Ralph Daigle and Gary Blackwell. I never really knew Blackwell, but Daigle was a good friend of mine from a point quite early in my own studies. For two years while I was in prison, Daigle was in prison as a tax protester. Daigle and Blackwell were both partners in Wickstrom's Detroit area church and went off into Paul bashing as Wickstrom took to womanizing, leading up to their final split over his Kathy Callstrom affair in 2005. Something which was also a great embarrassment to the identity Christian community. At the time, Daigle petitioned a letter from me relating to some of Wickstrom's claims, where he tried to abuse scripture in order to justify himself in stealing another man's wife. And I happily complied. Now Clifton continues speaking of Wickstrom's replacement at this 1996 meeting. His name was Jeremiah Faulkner, and he lived near there at the time. This Faulkner is a former resident of Luden, Tennessee, and he seems to be the same man who passed away on November 4, 2009, in West Palm Beach, Florida, if you look him up on the internet. In one of his presentations, he said the following about John 3.16, which I have on audio tape, and I may encounter that tape one day soon as we begin to finally sort out Clifton's tapes. I hope to do that this winter. I hope. This is Faulkner speaking, Clifton's transcription of Faulkner speaking. Let me try to explain some things to you that you might not know about this book. Like my friend, Brother Wickstrom, who had evidently already stormed out of the conference. I don't like to call it the Bible. It's a collection of scriptures, okay? That's his words, right? And the Bible's oldest complete manuscript that we have in existence today only dates back to the 700s, which are in St. Peter's Cathedral at Rome. And older than that are the scriptures in Aramaic that we have that are from the 300s, and they rest right now in Kurdistan. Of course, I must add that none of this is accurate.
we have broken copies of the scriptures from the Dead Sea Scrolls. But when you hear somebody get up and say that they are now going to quote from the original, original what? And it's about as original as we can get. You know, 700 AD in St. Peter's Rome. I have a friend. He has two doctorates, one including a Ph.D., once a year, it is his privilege, by authorization of the Pope, to fly into Rome and examine the earliest manuscripts in existence. Okay. And again, that's Faulkner's words. Okay. Then he takes the plane on to Kurdistan, because he is a professor in Aramaic, and gets a chance to see the scriptures in the Aramaic language. Do you know how much these are guarded? He has to wear a mask, just like a doctor. I mean, you're not allowed to. Suppose you sneeze or cough or spit on one of these things. And just like a doctor, he goes in robes and has a mask on. And he goes all the way across the ocean. The last time, he told me, he gets a plane fare to Rome, to Kurdistan, and on home to do four verses. Four verses! Do you think it would be worth it at all? And yet we, being so prolific, and we get up and do chapters and verses, and go on and on and on. But sometimes I think we'd be better off doing three or four words, even in one verse, and try to get some kind of understanding of it. And that's all pretty stupid. I read a similar story once by another supposed Christian identity pastor who used almost the same tale to convince his audience that John 8.37 said something other than it does. And both men are liars. It is a shame that anyone would have to resort to such nonsense, but they do it with stunning regularity. During the course of my own ministry, I have alienated many men just like this for this very reason and because they would not stand correction. Continuing with Clifton's transcription of Faulkner, for one more quite painful paragraph, I want to somehow get your attention. I want to get you thinking. I'm not here to give you any doctrine or to put my any of my views upon you. But if I could get you thinking, there is a chance in the end that truth might come in as if it can be obtained through lies, right? Can I shock you with something I'm sure you will be shocked with? John 3.16 John 3.16 How many could almost quote it if you had to? John 3.16 This friend of mine, who examines these scriptures once a year, told me the last time we were in California. He said, I can share this with you but I don't know anyone else I could share it with. I said, likely I'm going out to share it with everybody I meet. Do you know that John 3.16 isn't in any of the original scriptures? Do you know when it was inserted there? In the 13th century, but not even in the scriptures, just in a marginal note. And it never even got into the scriptures to the 1500s. And Clifton 
corrects the grammar somewhat there, till the 1500s. Do you know why it never got into the scriptures until the 1500s? Can anybody guess? Because it is not true. I hate to tell you, but it's not true. It starts off with the premise. If you believe John 3.16, you yourself are really going nowhere. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Not true, not true, not true. And if the scriptures in this world can stand on the high pedestals, I'm sorry, and if the churches in this world can stand on the high pedestals and look down at you folks in a pew or a seat someplace and tell you that God only has one son, you will never amount to anything. Only a sinner, you know, partly saved by grace, singing from the old hymn books. You see, Yahshua that came here to earth wasn't his first son either. Well, not if Luke 3 and 38, Clifton corrects that to Luke 3.38, chapter 3, verse 38, is true. Not if Luke 3.38 is true. Because of the genealogies, it says, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so begot Adam. The what? The Son of God. Really? And when they put the marginal note in, this is how it read. It said, For God the only Father. Hey, this is beginning to make a difference. God the only Father. It's not the only Son. It's God the only Father. And he did give a dearly beloved Son. That was the marginal note. But when these church people went to put it in, you can just take my word for it. There's the there's the proof that it's a lie right there. Faulkner says, you can just take my word for it. And then speaking of his friend, because Clifton added a few ellipses here. He goes to Rome once a year and says it's neither in the Aramaic, nor is it in the scriptures in St. Peter's. Does that shock or amaze any of you? It kind of gets your attention. To Faulkner's credit, he knew something was wrong with John 3.16, at least the way it was translated, and in multiple, in multiple respects. But to his discredit, he manufactured lies to refute it, rather than studying <clears throat> and finding out the truth. Even his elaboration is a lie, where he claims that the original note should have read, God the only Father, and both Malachi 2.11 and John 8.44 would refute that assertion. Clearly, the devil can also be a father, and have children which have nothing to do with God. In fact, just about everything Faulkner said about the manuscripts here is a lie. Now Clifton humbly admits his error for being persuaded by this subterfuge. And Clifton says, seeming somewhat reasonable, I, like many others, fell under Jeremiah Faulkner's sway. I questioned, 
Why would God so love the world at John 3.16? And that John chapter 17 verse 9 say, I pray not for the world. In 1996, I was not as advanced in my research as I am now, so at that time, I didn't question Faulkner's story. With this paper, we'll examine this subject in greater detail. The following two paragraphs were adapted by Clifton from a long letter which I had written to him on the subject. Clifton himself was only marginally acquainted with the Nestle A-Land edition of the New Testament. In fact, Clifton did not own an NA-27 in his library when I packed it up and moved it to Florida last year. Clifton only had a copy of the fourth edition of the Nestle A-Land Novum Testamentum Grece, which he had actually sent me sometime early in our relationship. And having that fourth edition is how I learned about Nestle A-Land and the publication and was able to find the most recent, at that time, 27th edition upon which all of my translations are based and from which I've done most of my studies in the New Testament. As for um, traveling to Rome for a day and only doing four verses at a time, in 1996 I find that quite ridiculous when you can take electronic photographs of an entire page or reproduce an entire page. Perhaps they didn't allow that. A lot of ancient, a lot of museums don't allow people to take um, flash photographs of ancient objects, and it would be difficult to do with a manuscript. If I had to read the New Testament from the original Greek manuscripts and translate it, I might only get a half dozen verses a day. A half dozen verses a day, that's a guess, right? If I had to parse all the Greek myself and figure out which letter formed a new word or started a new word or ended a word, it would take a lot longer. Whereas when I translated the New Testament from an already parsed document such as the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece, it's a lot faster, and you could actually read it almost as quickly as you read English and, and translate it on the fly. And I would do, depending on the material, I would do a chapter or two a day rather than half a dozen verses a day or half a dozen lines a day. So an unparsed manuscript, it would take a lot longer to translate than a parsed one, which is why we have... Um, in, in academia, we have two groups of scholars. The first group is manuscript editors, and the next group are translators, and they're two different functions. The manuscript editors take the original manuscripts and parse them and, and determine which words, which letters start and end new words.
Sometimes they could be debated with. And then the translators actually make translations because it really is two different functions and the first function is a lot more tedious and that's probably a long enough digression. To repeat myself, the following two paragraphs were adapted by Clifton from a long letter which I had written to him on the subject. Clifton himself was only marginally acquainted with the Nestle-Aland edition of the New Testament, but by this time I had been studying it for several years and had been employing it daily as I was translating the New Testament. So Clifton continues and says, Faulkner claimed these manuscripts were at St. Peter's Cathedral at Rome. Faulkner failed to notice that in the Nestle-Aland Novum Testamentum Grece 27th edition, which is the NA27, in the NA27 list of Greek manuscripts that it employs, the Vatican holds many Greek manuscripts, some of them very old indeed, and many others were copied as recently as the 16th century and still in Greek. Many other Greek manuscripts of great antiquity are held in various libraries throughout the Western world. The NA27 also cites Latin versions and provides a listing of those which it employed in its critical apparatus, but these are far fewer in number than the Greek. Old Latin texts are often used to compare or determine which of the readings of Greek manuscripts where they don't agree, which of them are probably more accurate. Apparently, contrary to popular opinion, the Vatican has a long tradition of Greek manuscript preservation. The NA27 lists the Vatican Library as Cita del Vaticano, Bibliotheca Vaticana, and surely this is not St. Peter's Cathedral, as Faulkner states. The Vatican Library is actually located inside of the Vatican Palace, and the entrance is through the Belvedere Courtyard. It should not be confused with St. Peter's Basilica, even if it is less than a kilometer distant. Today, if you can navigate to the appropriate catalog numbers, you can see at least many of the manuscripts which are stored there on the internet at the Bibliotheca Apostolica Vaticana website. You can view the entire Codex Vaticanus online there, right where the NA27 says it is cataloged number 1209. I will have a link to the Codex Vaticanus online at the Vatican Library in the notes to this text when I publish this podcast online this evening. The Gospel of John begins in the right-hand column of page 1349 of the Codex Vaticanus. Faulkner's story here is quite puerile, childish, 
and obviously to me an outright fabrication. People who are ignorant concerning certain things often assume that everyone else is just as ignorant and when they have agendas they somehow think they can make up stories and get away with it. That is the modus operandi of Scott Vaught, Russell Walkner, Russell Walker, and evidently Jeremiah Faulkner. Clifton continues to address Faulkner's nonsense from my letter, and he says, The NA-27 cites several Syriac, or Aramaic, versions in its critical apparatus. The critical apparatus of the Nestle Aland editions of the New Testament. The critical apparatus appears on the bottom of each page and supplies variant readings and the identities of the manuscripts that contain those readings. Everywhere there are notable variant readings among ancient manuscripts in the New Testament text. Sometimes variant readings are very numerous for a small number of passages. At other times there aren't as many. So sometimes the critical apparatus of the NA-27 is quite intricate and can get pretty complicated and, and pretty difficult to follow. You've got to be careful following it. The version cited for the Syriac versions that are used in the critical apparatus to the NA-27, the versions cited include the Cirrus Sinaiticus, dating to the 4th or 5th century AD, the Cirrus Curitonianus, which dates to the 5th century AD, the Peshitta, which is the most widely accepted of the Syriac versions, the Philozeniana, which was the first monophysite Syriac Bible version, commissioned by Bishop Philozenus of Mabug in AD 507-508, and the Harclensis, which was the version made by Thomas of Harkel in AD 616, and it's the only Syriac version containing the entire New Testament. We could see from this that um, all of the early Aramaic versions were actually translations of earlier Greek manuscripts made into Syriac. With the exception of the Philozeniana, of which most of its content has been lost and so it cannot be spoken for, there is no indication that John 3.16 is missing from any of these. And that's Clifton citing a letter that I had written to him sometime in 2004. This shows that Faulkner was lying about the contents of the Aramaic manuscripts for John 3.16. Now Clifton will actually quote from a part of my letter for which he assigned a subtitle. I do not remember writing this as a separate paper, so it must be from my letter. 
Another thing I should note here is that I did not actually undertake my translation of the writings of John until 2007, apparently completing them, according to my marginal notes, my own marginal notes, in September of that year. So now Clifton presents what he had called Exploring the Greek of John 3.16 by William Fink. I don't remember writing this, but I guess that Clifton must have adopted this from the letter that I mentioned in it that I had sent him. John 3.16 in the AV, the authorized version or King James Version, reads thusly, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now I'm going to have you suffer through the Greek. The Greek from which this verse was translated from the NA27 reads, Hautos gar egapesin hotheos ton kosmon, and that's for God so loved, the society as we write it now, or the world. Hoste ton huian ton manogene edokin, that he gave the most beloved or only begotten son. Hinapas hopis tuon, in order that each who believes, or whosoever, in the King James Version, whosoever believes, ais auton me apoletahi, in him, ais auton, me apoletahi, would not be lost or perish, as the King James has it, al eke zoen ahionion, but would have eternal life. In order to properly understand this verse, that is, in a biblical context and in the time it was written, we must comprehend the meanings of certain terms as they were then written. Especially important are the terms cosmos, homonogenes, which is only begotten, and pas, which, for which the King James has, whosoever which will be discussed here. And and here we could see that in 2004, my I was already making the assertions which I made here last week, presenting part 9 of our commentary on John, that in order to properly understand the verse, we have to understand it from a biblical context, that we have to understand each of those terms as the people who wrote them understood them. To properly understand the meaning of the word world in the Bible, one must first learn that there are two Greek words which have been translated world, and investigate the meanings and usage of those words in the Greek vernacular. The first word, oikumene, appears in the New Testament 15 times. And that's according to a concordance to the Greek Testament by W.F. W. F. Moulton and A.S. Geddon. The Moulton-Geddon concordance, I often refer to that as. And it is defined by Liddell and Scott in their Greek-English lexicon as the inhabited world, 
a term used to designate the Greek world as opposed to barbarian lands. So in Roman times, the Roman world, citing the New Testament as their authority for that. I do not know why, when I wrote this, I neglected to consider that a third world, a third word, I'm sorry, a third word, ahion, or eon, was also translated as world in the King James Version. I must have known that. In 2004, I had already translated my edition of the Epistles of Paul, but perhaps I did not think it was important to this particular discussion. Several years later, in August of 2010, I wrote a more complete essay on a topic titled, What is the World? Continuing with Clifton's citation of my letter, Strabo the geographer, who died in 25 AD, used this word oikumene often and described it fully in 17 books, most of which survive today. The oikumene of Strabo, his world, included all of Africa north of the Sahara, from the Straits of Gibraltar to the Horn of Africa, east to the Ganges River in India, north to the Jaxartes River in Asia, and west to the British Isles. This was the Greco-Roman world, in spite of the fact that Eratosthenes, whom Strabo quoted and referred to often, had calculated the circumference of the planet a couple of centuries before Strabo, and that they knew of land masses beyond their world. They knew the planet was a sphere, and Eratosthenes' calculation of its size was within reason. It wasn't perfect, but it was within reason. This world, as described by Strabo, and all of the Greeks before him, was astonishingly white, Adamic, and the non-white races or mixed races at its fringes were quite marginalized. Of course, there were Canaanites, as the tares were always among the wheat, but they were also white in appearance, or at least mostly white in appearance. The second word translated world, cosmos, appears in the New Testament approximately 182 times, 102 of which are in John's books and 51 in Paul's letters, again using the listings supplied by Moulton and Geddon in their concordance. And it is defined by Liddell and Scott, this word cosmos, as order, good order, good behavior, decency, the form or fashion of a thing, of states, order, government, and then secondarily, an ornament, decoration, embellishment, dress, and third, a regulator, and fourth, the world or universe from its perfect order, mankind as we use the world, citing the New Testament, which I would contend with there. At this point in my studies, I was only just becoming aware that the word 
cosmos would best be translated as society, and I was seeking academic corroboration for that opinion, which so far I have found only in a 2004 article by Gregory Nagy. So I cited the Nagy article in my 2010 article, What is the World? Of course, I remain convinced that quite often in the New Testament, cosmos is best translated as society, as it is now in my translations. But at this time, and when I first published the Christogenian New Testament on the Internet, I often left the word untranslated, transliterating it as cosmos because frequently the concept it represents is difficult to express accurately with a single English word. Even the word society falls short in some respects. Returning to Clifton's citation of my letter, once it is realized that mankind in the Bible is truly only Adam kind, and for that, I cite Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 22 and 45, 1 Timothy 2.13, Jude 14, Acts chapter 17.26, and Deuteronomy 32.8, which those two passages should surely be cross-referenced because in his Discourse to the Athenians, speaking of God making of one every nation of man, he certainly was referring to what we see in Deuteronomy 32.8. And I also cited Romans chapter 8 verses 21 and 39, Luke 3.38, and Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Once it is realized that mankind in the Bible is truly only Adam kind, and that the oikumene in Roman times encompassed the very same lands discussed at Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8 in which the Genesis 10 Adamic nations were long before distributed and that the Greco-Roman world and the New Testament world was limited to this which Luke chapter 2 proves, that a much deeper understanding of the scope of the Bible may be realized. In all actuality, the cosmos is the state of order within the oikumene, extended to the heavenly bodies also, which the ancients perceived as being much more a part of their world. They actually regulated their lives by the movements of the stars. We use clocks. The cosmos is the decorum of the oikumene. The oikumene was that portion of the planet inhabited by the white Adamic race, or mankind. It would not be improper to translate oikumene, the inhabited earth, the earth the parts of the earth inhabited by the Adamic race, and cosmos, the Adamic world, and anything short of such definitions, allows room for those who would want to cause confusion concerning such things.
Even what is pictured in the minds of most of us hearing the word society today is a corruption from what we could imagine that it described at the time of Christ or in medieval Europe. Here I had not yet discovered that the wisdom of Solomon describes precisely the world of the New Testament promises, which is the twelve tribes of Israel whom Yahweh had promised would inherit the earth. Neither had I yet discovered that the wisdom of Solomon also explains what is born from above, which is the Israelite society which was given the laws and blessings of God exclusively and which is the world that Christ came to save. Now Clifton continues his citation of my letter as it moves on to the next subject of the discourse. Homonogenes. The literal meaning of homonogenes is the only begotten. But is that what John meant when he wrote his gospel? Did John mean to call Yahshua Christ, ton huion ton manogene, the only begotten son, in spite of Luke 3.38, where Adam is called the son of God, and Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, where the children of Israel are called the children of Yahweh your God, there are other passages in Isaiah, in the Psalms. Or does the phrase have another meaning, idiomatic and unnoticed by many translators and commentators? There is definite proof that the term does have an idiomatic meaning, as best loved or most beloved, etc. And in writings quite contemporary to John, even in the New Testament, yet few have taken notice of this. And I must add that translators and commentators also have an agenda. And that agenda is that if Christ is the only Son of God, then no man can claim to have special status above other men, and we're all the same, and everybody, red, yellow, brown, and white, can come to Jesus. That's their agenda. But if there's a particular race that are designated children of God, universalism is dead. If some or certain people here are children of God. Universalism is dead once it is realized who they are. And it's easy to realize who they are if you simply believe the scriptures and reject the notion that one verse, as Clifton said at the beginning of this essay, that one verse can overrule or rule out what is stated in so many other verses. So if we view John 3.16 correctly, universalism is dead, and the universalists, those who would 
mix up the whole world and make bastards of us all would have a major plank taken out of their stairway to hell. Continuing with Clifton's citation of my letter. William Whiston's edition of Josephus's Antiquities in Book 1, Chapter 13, right at the beginning, begins, Now Abraham greatly loved Isaac as being his only begotten. And the footnote reads, Note that both here and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, Isaac is called Abraham's only begotten son, though he at the same time had another son, Ishmael. The Septuagint expresses the true meaning by rendering the text the beloved son. And I certainly agree with Wiston in every point of that. At Antiquities chapter 20, I'm sorry, book 20, chapter 2, in the first section, line 17, Josephus describes the birth of a son, Isates, to Monobazus the king of Adiabene, who had indeed Monobazus, his elder brother, by Helena also, as he had other sons by other wives besides. Yet did he openly place all his affections on this, his only begotten son, Isates. So, even though Whiston translated Monogene as only begotten, he has in a footnote here, Josephus here uses the word monogene, an only begotten son, for no other than the best, the one best loved, as does both the Old and New Testament. I mean, where there were one or more sons besides, citing Genesis 22.2 and Hebrews 11.17. Now that ends my citation of Wiston, and now Clifton continues to cite my letter. In the King James Version, Genesis 2, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 22, verse 2 begins, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. And the Septuagint translators recognize the idiom writing as Sir Francis Brenton has it. And he said, Take thy son, the beloved one whom thou hast loved, Isaac. Paul, at Hebrews 11.17, referring to this very thing, states, as the King James Version has it, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, where that same word, monogenes, was used. So here we have two instances of Josephus, another in the Old Testament, and then Paul, where the best beloved of multiple sons is referred to as only begotten. And so there should be no doubt that the term serves as an idiom 
for best beloved, as the Septuagint recognized it, and should be interpreted in that manner when we encounter its use in places such as John 3.16 and 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, not forgetting Luke 3.38 and Deuteronomy 14.1, or the fact that Yahweh claimed all of the children of Israel as his children. Not to do so, but to insist upon a purely literal translation, in spite of the evidence presented, is brazen intellectual dishonesty. There are instances where secular Greek writers use the term monogenes, like the Latin phrase sui generis, to mean one of a kind or unique. There is no doubt that Yahshua Christ was unique, being God incarnate. But it is arguable that the writers of Scripture had that view in mind. Rather, Paul went out of his way to illustrate the fact that Yahshua was just like the rest of the Adamic race, calling him firstborn among many brethren at Romans chapter 8 verse 29 and attesting that he, being God, had taken upon himself the seed of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 2, and significantly that he was of the same nature as the rest of his race, where he said in Hebrews chapter 4, from verse 15, For we do not have a high priest having no ability to sympathize with our weakness, but who being tested by all things in like manner is without sin. Therefore, we would rather imagine monogenes to have been used in the same way as the Hebrew idiom explained by the translation of Genesis 2.22. I'm sorry. Genesis 22.2 in the Septuagint, which Paul also followed in Hebrews chapter 11, even though the King James translators didn't, rather than in the way that secular writers sometimes use the term. I have to reject the idea that John or Paul had the term one of a kind, had the concept of monogenes as meaning one of a kind when they wrote it, but rather they followed the Hebrew idiom and used monogenes to mean most loved or best loved or special son. Clifton continues citing my letter. The word translated whosoever in the authorized version, pas, properly means all or the whole, depending upon whether one refers to many entities or a single one. The translation of pas as any must be limited to certain contexts and circumstances.
for which see Liddell and Scott in the large ninth edition of their lexicon at PAS Part 3, Section 2, or Section 3, Part 2, where use of the accusative case pan is illustrated. Proper ways to say whosoever in Greek, which are found often in the New Testament, are hos eon, hos on, or hostis, for which see Ludell and Scott at the word hos in section 2, part 4, and also at hostis, the word his in John 3.16, where the King James Version reads, his only begotten son, does not appear in the earlier manuscripts, but in a papyrus, P63, dating to 500 AD, and some other uncials and miniscules. Miniscules are the later copies of scripture written in the medieval period that used a small case Greek alphabet rather than an all-capital all-capital letter Greek alphabet like the coin Greek manuscripts had. I would omit his it's not in the earliest manuscripts as does the NA27. In light of all this I would translate John 3.16 for Yahweh so loved the cosmos, the ador order or adornment of the oikumene, that he gave the best beloved or most beloved son, in order that all who are persuaded in him, or all who are believing in him, would not be lost or destroyed, but would have eternal life. So here once again we see that in March of 2004, I was not quite as confident to render cosmos as society as I was in 2010 and as I remain to this day. However, I certainly wouldn't have translated it as world. In at least one place in the Christianian New Testament, one that I could think of, it is rendered as order. There may be more. So far as I remember, I did not begin to emend my translations to reflect this understanding until 2010. Now Clifton continues his citation of my letter under the subtitle, Fink's Answer to Faulkner's Fiction. And I wrote, There are 22 ancient papyri discovered via archaeology which are employed by the NA-27 among the consistently cited witnesses for the Gospel of John. Three of these are dated to the 2nd century and eight to the 3rd. Of these 11, the 11 oldest, of course none are complete, three papyri contain any part of John 3, P66, P75, and P80, the papyri simply have number designations and a statement of where they are, what library or what museum, and what catalog number. P66, P75, and P80, which is but a fragment of John 334, 
only and must be discounted here. P66, that's one of the papyri known as a, a one of a collection of papyri known as the Chester Beatty papyri, and it's actually stored in the library at the University of Michigan, I believe. P66, said to be circa 200 AD, is complete from John chapter 1, verse 1 to John chapter 6, verse 11, and from John 6, 35 to John 14, verse 26, and it has fragments of chapters 15, 16, and 20. <clears throat> P75 from the 3rd century is complete from John chapter 1, verse 1 to John chapter 11, verse 45, and has fragments throughout the rest of chapter 11 and chapters 12 through 15. Of course, neither P66 nor P75 have any part of the noted interpolation of John 7.53 to 8.11. That's the tale of the woman caught in adultery, which should not be in Scripture. Neither is John 3.16 wanting in either of these manuscripts. With this verse's presence in these ancient papyri, and no indication from the NA-27 of the verse's absence in any of the uncials, miniscules, or other manuscripts handed down since the 4th century, it must be asked, by what source or authority is this verse to be considered a marginal reading? With such overwhelming evidence, one must treat John 3.16 as a part of the text. In order to understand, and this is sort of like a note that I wrote for Clifton, in order to understand the definitions of the terms cosmos, for which see my recent essay in reply to Dave Barley, the context of the phrase, whosoever believeth, and the meaning of ton huian ton monogene, or the only begotten Son. And here there seems to be something missing from the text. As the grammar, that's one sentence, and the grammar is not complete. I do not have the original letter to check against Clifton's transcription, although I might have a copy of it in storage. I saved many of my letters which I wrote to Clifton, copies of them. I didn't save all of them. I wrote two letters to Dave Barley but I do not know exactly when I wrote this letter to Clifton. Here I had called the Barley letter recent. I first wrote to Dave Barley on September 17, 2003, and my second letter to him was written sometime in January 2004. Clifton first compiled them into a single document on January 26th of that year. So this letter, which Clifton is quoting from in March of 2004, must have been written very soon after the Barley letter. In that second letter to Dave Barley, I spoke at length on the subject of the world and wrote one of my earliest attempts to describe the distinction between cosmos and oikumene, 
it is not posted at Christagenia, although I have been a long time, I have been a long time thinking about doing that. I just haven't gotten around to it. However, it was published soon after it was transcribed and compiled by Clifton at the Israel Elect website, where it can be found today. Now Clifton cites the balance of this final paragraph of my letter, or at least the final one that he, that he employed. For whosoever must be limited to the Adamic race, and for the only begotten Son, I would translate Best Beloved Son. Please refer to the notes which accompany my Hebrews translation <clears throat> at Hebrews 11, verse 17, page 115 of my notes. They were actually completed, I believe, in late 2003 where this idiom is explained, at least concisely, with examples cited from the Septuagint and Josephus. The word his in John 3.16 does not appear in the earlier manuscripts, but in a papyri, P63, dating to 500 AD, and some early uncials and miniscules. I would omit his, as does the NA27, where I have autu, above in the Greek example that I gave. Atu is in brackets and means his. My words here were originally intended only for Clifton, or I would have sent him my own pamphlet-length essay. So I did not really expect him to repeat them in one of his papers. But of course I could not object once he chose to do so. He did that often during the years that I helped him with his ministry from prison. So far as I could tell, the earliest complete paper of mine which Clifton had published was Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy in December of 2003, just months before this. Now this is the end of his citation of my letter, and Clifton himself continues under the subtitle, Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 defines the whosoever of John 3.16. And Clifton says that Galatians 4, 1 to 6 is very important to bring John 3.16 into its proper context and reads as follows. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all but as under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might recover the position of sons. And because ye are God, ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians, and that's an, that, that seems to be an amended version of the King James translation. 
but it might be emended from or copied from an early version of the Christogenian New Testament. I really don't remember. It's not exactly as I have it now, but it's close. Galatians 4, 1 through 6 is also very important to understand the context and Paul's original intent in Galatians 3.16. The plurality of heirs mentioned in Galatians 4 being the children who were under the law, we see that the seed of Galatians 3.16 must be the collective seed of the descendants of Jacob as opposed to the other seeds, the children of Esau, Ishmael, and the sons of Keturah, who, regarding the covenant, were not designated as heirs. This explanation was the purpose of my later essays, The Seed of Inheritance, Parts 1 and 2, which I think were published by Clifton in the spring of 2005, a year after this. Clifton continues in relation to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and asks, Who else under the law, who else was under the law but Israel? Also, the phrase made of a woman in verse 4 in the King James Version takes us to Genesis 3.15 in the center reference. Inasmuch as Eve was made from Adam, that excludes all non-Adamic peoples from this discussion. Of course, mainstream Christians don't recognize that there are non-Adamic peoples. Not all men, or as the authorized version renders it, whosoever, in a universal context, as mainstream churchianity interprets it. When are we ever going to learn that our Redeemer is a kinsman Redeemer, and that only a kinsman Redeemer can redeem a kinsman? Now, don't try to pull that fiction that Israel is redeemed and the other races are saved business. For Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Who else was lost but Israel? So too, only Israel can be saved. I have now presented evidence showing both sides of the story about John 3.16. My side and Jeremiah's Faulkner's side, I gather. It will now be each individual's responsibility to decide what he believes to be the truth on the matter. But there still remains another side of the story concerning John 3.16. For there is probably no other verse in Scripture taken so entirely out of context to support the false doctrine of universalism. The universalists seize upon the words world and whosoever to support their universalist orientation. They clutch onto many passages, taking them completely in error to build their unstable position. John 3.16 is only one of the passages the Universalists have used to erroneously prop up their unsound theory. No doubt it has been the Universalists, past and present, who have dubbed John 3.16 as the quote-unquote golden text of the Bible. Using Yahweh's word in such a manner Causes it, causes it to become of no effect. 
they will use Matthew 13.44 about the treasure hid in a field to try to prove that our Messiah purchased the entire world, which they claim represents the field, in order to obtain the true treasure, the Israelites. Then they will back up to Matthew 13.38 and point out that it says, the field is the world. They entirely overlook that Matthew 13.44 designates that field, not the entire farm. The Greek word for that at Matthew 13.44 is 1565 and means a place, that place, that one, same, self-same, that same, very. In other words, it, the Greek word points out a particular field. The Universalists claiming to be Israel identity take the position that our Messiah purchased all the other races in order to acquire the true treasure, the Israelites, which they consider to be Jews. They also completely overlook the fact that these are two distinctly different parables and that the word field might have an entirely different idiomatic application in the two separate parables. Poor old God can't do anything right. This is the kind of defecting, defective reasoning the Universalists use. And there were many Universalists claiming to be Christian Israel identity back in 2007. And there were probably, there are probably just as many now. We like to call these CI people compromise identity. All of those whom Clifton and myself have encountered over the years have despised us, and especially clowns such as Ted Wyland. From what I understand, Dave Barley has repented of his universalism which is much to his credit. And he even wrote me a kind note this past summer when Clifton's health began to decline. I still need to answer him, and I do hope to be able to answer him soon. Here, however, it is unclear precisely which universalists in identity Clifton had in mind. So he continues... Whatever happened to the statement by our Messiah, that I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, or whatever befell the proclamation, you, Israel, only have I known of all the families of the earth, in Amos chapter 3, verse 2. These two passages are hardly in context with the idea of buying the whole world. Such nonsense must be forcibly read into the scriptures, for it isn't there. And now, under the subtitle, Father and Son are one and the same. By this time, 
the reader should be acquiring some idea of what John 3.16 says and what it doesn't. But there is one more factor we should consider. And while chiding others, I must also condemn myself. For I too once believed in a trinity. Since John 3.16 speaks of a best beloved son, we should know who that son is. This can all be cleared up with the passage at John 14, verses 7 through 10, which says, If you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth you know him, and have seen him. That should have been enough of a clue right there that Yahshua Christ was the incarnation of Yahweh himself. Philip saith unto him, Yahshua, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Yahshua said unto him, and Clifton is modifying the King James Version here slightly, Have I been so long a time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? And that's the second time Yahshua asserts that he is God the Father. Have I been so long time with you, and you have not known me? Philip asked Yahshua to show him the Father. He answered it right there. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, meaning of his physical body, which is only a vessel, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. So Clifton responds and says, While there is a sense of fatherhood and sonship involved, the two are but one person. How much plainer can it be, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Our Redeemer expected Philip and the other disciples gathered there with him at that occasion to believe his statement. I am quite sure that if one of us today were to make the same request as Philip, we would receive a very similar reply, although we have not as yet seen him. Let's follow that one with John chapter 20, verse 29. Yahshua saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. Christ spoke those words immediately after Thomas declared him to be my Lord and my God, something which Clifton evidently expected his reader to understand here. If Christ is Thomas's God, then Christ and Yahweh are one and the same, since Israel has only one God. Christ did not somehow become another God or a second God, but he was God in the first place which Thomas recognized and exclaimed after realizing the implications, realizing that Christ had indeed been resurrected. Now Clifton concludes, Looking back, which is nothing more than 2020 hindsight, 
I realized that I should have questioned Jeremiah Faulkner's presentation more thoroughly about John 3.16 not being in the original manuscripts. To say the least, I no longer hold to Faulkner's concept and will no longer pass his testimony along to others as being credible. If you want to know what Faulkner said on this subject, it's all contained in this brochure. In October of 1996, in his introductory paragraph to the lies of Scott Vaught, Clifton described the other speakers of that October 1996 Luton, Tennessee conference, among them another unscheduled speaker, a Reverend Jeremiah B. Faulkner, who gave some very informative teachings. So Clifton's first impression of Faulkner was indeed very good, and, as he explained here, he accepted Faulkner's claims without having checked them sufficiently. It is remotely possible, because I did it quite often, and I don't want to brag, it is remotely possible that Clifton had repeated Faulkner's lies in some paper that he sent me to proofread, and I wrote Clifton on this subject at such length to correct him and to, per to dissuade him of following Faulkner's lies. That's remotely possible. I, I mean, it did happen more than once in in the times that I was editing for him. This has always been a problem among identity Christians. And for that reason, we have a plethora of errors, such as the sixth and eighth day creation heresy, or the idea that the Hebrew word che is a technical term for non-Adamic races of people, and especially for Negroes. Both of those heresies are quite ridiculous when we actually examine scripture. Most of this happens only because people seek answers for things, and when they do not find them, they use their imaginations to manufacture their own. Once they think they have something that makes sense, they then teach for truth the precepts of men, and they often refuse to be corrected, corrected because they do not want to be convicted of their error, or perhaps of their stupidity. We all fall for errors, and none of us can avoid it. But humility is displayed when we admit that we can learn something better, and when we recognize our mistakes, we can then exchange our opinions for a better established truth. Of course, few Christians, even in identity, can be expected to have an intimate acquaintance with all of the many hundreds of surviving ancient Greek manuscripts. However, what discernment should be necessary for us all is this, that whenever something which is novel 
is claimed in reference to scripture that it should be examined closely before it is ever accepted and believed regardless of from whom it comes Clifton himself would certainly agree to that thank you for listening praise Yahweh the God of Israel and good night